Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you again. Today, uh, what we're up to is we're wrapping up a vision series here at Revolution. And the series has been called A Church For. Claire talked a little bit about it earlier. And the big idea for the series has been, as she said, it's been this. It's been that if we are going to flourish in this season, as we're coming back um, into meeting in person and meeting in a new space and, and all of that, if we're going to flourish as a church, we have to learn how to be faithful to what makes us unique as a community. What are, store, what are our stories, right? These are the questions we have to ask. What are our stories? What are our passions? And how do those things that are distinct about us line up with the actual needs and the hopes of the real people who are around us. This week, we're finishing up the series by talking about the last of these kinds of, I don't know the grammar here, we want to be a church for whom is the question I'm getting around to. And the answer this week, what we're looking at this week, is being a church for people who want to walk together. If you know me, you knew this was coming. Like, there's no way I was going to get through four weeks of talking and not get around to walking. And here's, here's what I mean by that, though. I think and this is, this is our controversial point, right? I think that there is a half-truth that's dominating American Christian culture that I think many of us in this room have been stung by in the past. And the half-truth, bear with me, the half-truth is this. The half-truth is that Christian faith is a sudden and a radical transformation. Becoming a Christian is primarily about a moment of conversion where you move from this camp of the lost to this camp of the saved. And I say that this is a half-truth because it is right and biblical to identify that there is a moment of critical and radical surrender waiting for us, either in this life or in the life to come, when we're going to recognize our sin and we're going to have an opportunity to repent and to see fully who our God is. But in the church that I grew up in, I don't know about you, but in the church I grew up in, we tried to push people towards that moment by telling them a lot about what would happen if they stayed lost, that they would live disappointing lives and then they would go to hell when they died. And the solution, of course, was being baptized and getting saved. That act of baptism changes your eternal trajectory from the bad place to the good place. But what I've come to see is that for all the hopeful intentions of focusing on that one moment of conversion, which I want to be clear is something I still very much believe in and which the Bible says is a real choice that everybody is given to make. But churches like the church I grew up in also taught me in emphasizing that moment of choice, they taught me a half lie. And that is that after that moment, after being baptized, the story of my faith was going to be a happily ever after. And that's not what I've experienced. I was baptized when I was seven years old. I walked down the aisle to my, my like little Southern Baptist church to the front. I walked down when I was six, but they made me wait three weeks until my birthday. Because they were like, we're not baptizing a six-year-old. That's weird. But seven's fine. Anyway, I got baptized when I was seven years old. But what that means is that my whole journey as a Christian has come after that moment. I have functionally no memories of my life before that moment. And this journey that I've been on as a Christian has had major ups and downs. And what I've learned in the last 33 years, you're doing the math, 40 is the answer to my age. What I've learned in the last 33 years can be summed up like this, that baptism is the beginning 
of become a, becoming a Christian and not the end of it. What I started to do at the age of seven by saying I wanted to make Jesus the Lord of my life is something I've actually had to live out for 33 years since then. And the truth is that sometimes Jesus isn't the Lord of my life. Sometimes I try to be the Lord of my own life. And when that happens, I wander from what God is calling me to. But what I think did happen when I was seven was that I promised God that I would keep looking for him. And God put something in me that continues to remind me that he's near and that he can help me be faithful to that promise that a seven-year-old made. When I say church is for people who want to walk together, what I mean is that this church can be a place for the journey of faith, a place for people who sense that they need more than a one-time experience or spectacle, a place for people who know that they at least need company to stay on this path, an encouragement to take each and every careful step of surrender and trust. Now, the good news is that if we want to be a church like this, we're in good company in Scripture. I was overwhelmed this week when I started digging into examples of what it means to walk with God in the Bible. We'd be here all day if we wanted to talk about each time that God tells people that his heart is to walk with them, or people tell God that they want to walk with him, or church leaders in the Bible say that the point is to walk together in our faith. So the challenge this week is to pick a few examples which can help guide us in this conversation. But recognizing that if you want to do the research at home, you've got, you'll fill, your, fill the rest of your week easily. So to that end, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna organize our time around three questions which we're gonna try to answer. The first is this, what happens when we set out to walk with God? And then the second is what does it take to keep walking with God? And then the third is why is walking the metaphor that we keep finding in the first place? So let's start with that first one. What happens when we set out to walk with God? Well, to cut to the chase here, what happens is that, or what we believe happens is that the Holy Spirit of God comes into our very selves and then goes to work within us. We see plenty of evidence of this idea in scripture, but it's perhaps most stark in Paul's letter to the Galatians when he writes this. He writes, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So we're God's sons, and the spirit of God has come into us, into our hearts, and calls out to our God, Father. From within us, that spirit, as we've talked about before, does a bunch of stuff. He gives us gifts. He convicts us of sin in our lives. And he translates, this is my favorite of the things, he translates the feelings and the needs of my heart into prayers to God. I love that. And all of this is to what end? Why is the Spirit doing all that stuff? Well, also according to Paul, the Holy Spirit's job is to carry to completion this good work that begins in us when our walk with God begins in that moment of surrender. If we go back to the way we think about that moment, right? That moment of spiritual conversion, the leaders of the early church are insistent that early Christians keep moving forward from that point. The Holy Spirit is the engine then that drives and enables that forward movement. And it is the role of a church then to support this ongoing work in its 
members to watch for that stuff happening and then to celebrate it with each other and then to help us all grow into the helpers and the servants of others that we're called to be as we try to live out and grow into our new roles as, as sons and daughters of God. So this then is, is the first thing. So, okay, that's all fine. You know, some of you have like long checked out here. It's like you were not looking for that conversation. But to, to bring you back, that's all fine and good. And you may be thinking like any church can be that. But I want, I want to say this. The first thing that it means when we say we want to be people who focus on that work, who don't just say it or preach it, but focus on that work, is we have to be people who welcome people to join us on a journey. We can't be a church that ever turns away another traveler. We also can't expect, and this is the bigger point, we can't expect anybody to move suddenly from the camp of the non-Christians to the camp of the Christians. Even if the moment of baptism changes the ultimate destination of your journey, the journey itself still has to happen. So a journey-friendly church is going to be patient. It's going to withhold judgment and reserve criticism for trusted relationships. Not for me from the pulpit, for all of you. And it's going to trust... It's going to trust that the same Holy Spirit that is working in me is working just as hard in everybody else. What you need from me then isn't a wagging finger. And if you come to this church thinking that you're going to come like get me whacking my finger at people, specifically the same people you want to wag your finger at, you're in the wrong place. Because what people need, what a journey-friendly church cares about, isn't wagging the finger. It's helping people. It's a helping hand to people who are on the same journey that you're on. And that all, I think, leads us to a second question, right? What does it take to keep walking then with God? And this, of course, is where like things get a little bit harder and more divisive for us to talk about. And again, I'm going to cut to the chase. Ultimately, if you're walking along this journey of faith, you are going to have to give absolutely everything up. That's the thing that you probably don't want me to say, but I have to. This walk, if you follow this walk to the end, takes everything from you. You're going to have to give everything up. Faith requires us to lay down our whole selves, every single piece of us, every single priority and value, and to ask God with open hands, who have you made me to be? Certainly, this is what Christ asked for from his disciples, right? They're asked to lay down everything, to lay down their jobs, their families, even in one case, the task of burying a father in order to follow him. And it's also the thing that Christ himself models for us too, right? He puts down his own place in order to live with us, to suffer among us, even to die on our behalf. So all that is to say that like, as much as I hate to say it, there's no holding back from Christian faith. And there are no acceptable compromises or half measures. You're called to fully surrender your whole life. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul puts it like this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So if we're going to follow Christ, we're on a road 
the good news is that we're on a road that leads to resurrection, but it has to lead to surrender and death first. So what does that have to do with walking? I think this is where so many of us get lost, either in a church context or, or even in a private faith. We get lost because we forget that that thing, that all-demanding, all-encompassing thing, laying down our lives, that laying down our lives is something that takes a lifetime to do. It can't happen all at once, even if we, we want it to or want to imagine that it does. It can't happen over the course of like a, a six-week Bible study or a like new believers class that goes on for three months and teaches you how to be a Christian. Like that work of laying your whole life down takes your whole life to do. Do you know the riddle of the ship of Theseus? Actually, I want to know. Anybody? Hands? Ship of Theseus? Whoa. <laughs> I love how embarrassed Travis is to be the only person who knows. Oh, my gosh. Okay, great. That's great, actually. <laughs> means that I have to explain it, and you won't be annoyed when I do. It's an old philosophy. Tell me if I'm, if I'm doing this right, Travis. It's an old philosophy experiment, and here's how it goes. In a certain harbor, Athens is the harbor, but... We're going to say a certain harbor. There sat the ship of the great hero Theseus. And over time, as the timbers of that ship rotted away, the people of the city sent craftsmen to replace the timbers on the ship so that the ship might live on in perpetuity as a monument to their great hero. In time, every single original piece of that ship rots away. And yet, the ship is still there, in the harbor. The philosophical riddle, of course, is, is that the same ship? And I wonder if our walk with God isn't similar to that story. Because we too are precious to our God. And yet we too are imperfect and we're rotting away in places. And it is God's work to restore us one plank at a time. Now, unlike the ship of Theseus, we have some say in this. We can be stubborn and we can beg to protect some of those rotting planks. But if we allow him to do it, God will make us fully new. Now, the challenge for us is in trusting that the ship that we're going to become is still the ship that we once were. I know that I need help. We all know that we need help. I know there are things about me that I need God to forgive, to repair, and to improve. But I confess to you that I am also scared sometimes of losing who I am when I turn myself over to God. And so what I need to remember that I think that riddle helps us with is that God already loves me. He loves me. He isn't changing me from somebody that he hates into somebody that he can accept. What's happening when I walk with my God is that God is making me, a person who he already loves, into somebody who's not so prone to rot. I'm still going to be me. I can trust him. But at the same time, for him to do the work that he set out to do, no plank in me can be off limits. 
So what I need most is your companionship and your encouragement so that together we can show those who are fearful of what God asks for from them that God can be trusted. Paul has an interesting way of putting this in that same chapter, in that same letter to the Corinthians. He writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Walking that journey is reconciliation. The old is being replaced by the new, and our ministry is in putting our own lives up as ambassadors so people can see and believe in God's kindness and his good work. And churches have far too often failed to live as ambassadors because they fixated instead on telling other people how and what they need to change in order to be acceptable to God. Instead of saying the truth, which is that God has already decided to accept you. And if you're willing to rest in his acceptance, he will give you real life, one step or one plank at a time. I understand why we make that mistake. We make it because we go back to that first thing, that choice. Do you want to end up in the good place or the bad place? And we don't want people to end up in a bad place. And so we make some compromises in the way that we act and talk to try and motivate people to choose the good place. But that's a dangerous thing to do and a damaging thing to do. It might get people to go get themselves in a baptismal somewhere, but it doesn't help you when you're looking at the next 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 years of your life of actually having to walk this thing out. So if what happens when we start walking is that the Holy Spirit of God begins that good work in us, and if what keeps us walking is mutual support as we seek the courage to trust God with all of ourselves over a lifetime, what is so special about walking as the metaphor that Scripture keeps giving us? Other than that, I guess most people have done it and have done it for a long time and will continue to. So there's some value. But here's my hunch. I think it's more than that. And here's my hunch. I think walking is a metaphor that solves the riddle of God's presence. Walking is a metaphor that solves the riddle of God's presence. Here's what I mean. It is easy to think of God being present in your life when he is speaking to you or acting in obvious ways or working some miracle. We know how to interpret presence. And it is also just as easy to think that God is absent from your life when nothing seems to be happening of any interest. But that's not how we understand what happens when we're on a walk with somebody is it? Journeys together are filled with times of silence, along with times of just simple company. There are times when we drift into our own thoughts, when we experience exhaustion, 
And a good walking companion is somebody who is easy company. Who's there for a big conversation when the big conversation needs to happen. Who's quiet when we need quiet. Who's there for silliness when we're feeling silly. What does God's desire to walk with us rather than to rule us on high as a king or to give us favors in exchange for our sacrifices? What does his desire to walk with us reveal to us about what kind of God he is? What does he actually long for in his relationship with his creation? What I want when I walk with somebody, notes to anyone who plans to walk with me anywhere at any time in the future. This is, actually, I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't in the script, and I'm realizing it was a mistake because it's going to make the next part weird. So let's rewind and go back to what the script says. What the script says is this. What I want when I walk with somebody is love. What I want is love. I want to feel that easy company. Our temptation is to make God into somebody he's not because the God that we are trying to turn him into ultimately asks for less from us than the God who's real. We want a genie or we want a king on high, or we want an oracle, because those are things that we can choose to engage with and then to disengage from so that we can be alone again. But God doesn't want to be our taskmaster. He doesn't even want to be our destination. He wants to be our companion, our father. He wants us to rest in his easy company today, every day, one of my favorite stories in scripture comes from Luke's gospel. It takes place later on Easter Sunday, which is a thing we forget about this story. But it's on Easter Sunday at this very moment when Jesus's own disciples are still trying to figure out where Jesus's body has gone. Resurrection is not on their horizon right now. They're just wondering who stole Jesus's body. And here's what happens in Luke 24, 13 through 31. It says, now that same day, two of them, two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? This is a great spy moment too, like a totally amazing Jesus moment. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Another ironic thing that's funny. What things, Jesus asked them. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And you join me in saying, where is that? Like, of all the things to omit in the middle of a story. As they approached the village to which they are going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Is this not the most lovely story? On the most exciting day in human history, the day when death itself had been defeated, how does the newly risen and victorious Jesus choose to spend his entire afternoon? He chooses to spend it on the road with some of his friends who are so sure that he can't possibly be alive that they don't recognize him when he's right there in front of them. And it's not hard to imagine Jesus is annoyed by that or even angry about that. But the Jesus here isn't those things in the slightest. He walks with them. And as they go, he tells them everything that they've ever wanted to know about him. And then when he's going to leave them, they invite him over for dinner, not because he's God incarnate. And I think this matters. They invite him over for dinner, not because he's God incarnate. They invite him over for dinner because he's become a friend who's teaching them and whose company they enjoy. What if what God is asking for from us is just to be sincerely interested in him? To be interested in his company? It's true that what he has to say to us is something that's going to lead us to something great. It's a road to salvation. It is a pathway to eternal life, to all of that. But over and over again, Jesus shows us that God's heart is not to threaten us into accepting heaven. His heart is to open heaven up to us through a relationship with him. A church for people who want to walk together, who are experiencing Christian faith as a journey that lasts a lifetime, is a church that never turns away a traveler, that loves good questions and humble answers, and that genuinely seeks and fosters companionship along this road. We can be that sort of church. We can be people who invite other people to join us on a journey that we're actually walking step by step, laying down ourselves, plank by plank in the easy company of God and the easy company of one another. What it will take for us for that to happen is a shift in perspective. Do we really have the courage and the hope to see our faith as something that is actually central to our lives? Do you think that you're on a journey of faith? Once you get that right, once you move to this being the core story and the core walk of your life, all the rest of that stuff flows easily from it. I'll close with this. I've never tried to hike the Appalachian Trail. I mean, I guess like a mile or two here, but I've never tried to be one of those people. 
but I am fascinated by people who've done it. Have any of you done that? Travis? Okay. <laughs> what I find fascinating about people, Joel, did you like that? Okay, just checking. I'm trying to, anybody else could surprise me. Ivy? A little bit. Okay. All right. Anyways, I'm fascinated by people who, who do this. Because what starts, what's fascinating to me is like the AT isn't that exciting of a trail. That's kind of the irony or the funny thing about the whole thing. It's mostly a walk in the woods. But this thing that starts as a day hike, like any other day hike, just seem like for, for you to do it, it turns into this other, this totally different thing. To hike the AT requires putting everything else about your life to the side. It requires six months, roughly. Six months without a job, without a home, without a set place. But people who do it, people who do it tend to find something deep and true in that experience. And what they find is this, that their home becomes the woods and their family becomes other hikers. There's even a cheesy word for it, a tramily. Have you heard this word? A trail family? It's awful. <laughs> a tramily. Folks who succeed in this hike don't fixate day in and day out on how long they've been gone or what they've put away or how far they've still got left to go. They learn to focus on the day in front of them, on the changes in themselves and on the company of others. It's not a bad metaphor, right? It's true that this faith asks for almost everything from us, but that doesn't have to feel so much like loss as it does revelation. There's peace in being holy at work and discovering the person that you've been created to be. There's peace in that. And doing that alongside others. I want a church, I'm going to say it, it's cheesy, you knew I was going to say it. I want a church that is a tramily. I want a faith, I want a faith that asks for everything from me. Anything less than that wouldn't be worth setting out on the journey towards. And if you're here and you want to be a part of revolution, my challenge to you is to ask if you're really looking for something like that too. Because there are people around us who would be willing to go on this kind of a journey if they could trust that they wouldn't be alone once they set out on it. So the challenge is, are you willing, are you really willing to keep each other company?